Welcome to the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. This is Doug Finn, and as you might imagine, my nickname is Dogger. Here by my side is my musical buddy and muse, Muddy Waters Finn, a chocolate lab rescue that we took in six years ago. Whether I'm practicing for my band, listening to music, or researching for the Dogger and Muddy Music Show, he is by my side. The focus of our show is on the story, the stories of the artists, the songs, and the people behind the scenes. We are based in Dallas, Texas, which lends to our show favoring country, better stated, outlaw country, Americana, and blues music. In my mind, these musical genres lean heavily on telling a story. Personally, that's what I love, a great story. As we neared the kickoff of the Dogger and Muddy Music Show, the question at hand became, where do we start? We decided to go back in time to a couple recording sessions where the music and the people involved played a huge role in the history of music. The sessions were conducted at 508 Park in downtown Dallas. In 1935, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys laid down their first recordings. Bob was soon regarded as the king of Western Swing. Over the ensuing years, Bob and the Playboys became the face of Western Swing. Musical artists they influenced include Willie Nelson, George Strait, and Ray Benson, the founder of Asleep at the Wheel. Their portfolio of music contained such hits as San Antonio Rose, Milk Cow Blues, Ida Red, Take Me Back to Tulsa. On June 19th and 20th, 1937, Robert Johnson's final recording session took place. The blues artist, who is storied to have sold his soul to the devil, recorded Sweet Home Chicago, Love in Vain, Hellhound on My Trail, and more. When these recordings found homes in England in the late 1950s and early 60s, young men such as Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and others were mesmerized by the sonic power of his music. Robert's music helped define their music. In this show, we're going to talk about Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, as well as explore the history of 508 Park. So pop a cold one, and let's get started. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? Our first guest is Ray Benson, founder of Asleep at the Wheel. The band is based out of Austin, Texas, and they have been waving the banner for Western Swing music for over 46 years now. Let's get his perspective on Bob Wills and Texas Playboys, as well as the other artists of Western Swing. There you are. Hey, Ray. How are you, sir? Where are you at? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Yep. That ain't far. <laughs> no, it's not too far. Pretty good place to be. Ray, before we open our discussion on Bob Wills and Western Swing, I want to give our listeners a perspective on you and Asleep at the Wheels' contribution to music. Over the last 46 years, you've delivered over 20 albums, won nine Grammy Awards. You yourself have produced several musical artists, Dale Watson, Carolyn Wonderland, super blues artist, and a very hot country star right now, Aaron Watson. Last year, you released the book, Coming Right At You: How a Jewish Yankee Hippie Went Country, or the often outrageous history of Asleep at the Wheel. And I can confirm, it is a very good read. Asleep at the Wheel is one of the most sought-after bands to play at Austin City Limits, and Ray is a highly regarded promoter of the Austin music scene. So let's turn to Bob Wills. Ray, what led you, a young man from Philadelphia, to reignite Western Swing? Well, first of all, I appreciate the reigniting because, you know, people come up to me and say, thanks for saving Bob Wills. I said, well, (laughs) I didn't save Bob Wills. He passed away. Uh, I like that that reigniting. Well, uh, me and Lucky basically were looking for Roots American music. Um, uh, Lucky is Ruben, you know, who I started the band with. And um, to that end, um, our our stated goal was, he says, you know know what's interesting is white folks who play black music and black folks who play white music was was our kind of little, you know, sociological uh, view of the whole deal 
And so when we heard Bob Wills, that's what it was. On you know there were there was there are a lot of examples of people who who crossed their cultural upbringing to become something else. You know, so that was it. I know that sounds kind of I don't know what it sounds like, but that's what it was. You yeah. know. Um, so anyway, in that pursuit, we also wanted to be a country western band, uh, but this was 1969, 1970. And we were baby boomer kids against war in Vietnam. We loved Merle Haggard, but we didn't agree with Oki from Muskogee. <laughs> so it was like we had we straddled this really weird line, you know. And we played in redneck bars, and then we in in West Virginia, and then we would play on hippie rock joints in Washington D.C. Uh, you know. So it became uh, obvious that there was more than just. Uh, uh, the music going on there was the whole you know sociological change the whole thing and we wound up in texas now we love bob wills and our first so we recorded you know bob wills songs we recorded moon mulligan who was again one of the great western swing piano players it was and here we go we wind up in texas in the uh, end of 1972 or beginning 73 and the song Take Me Back to Tulsa was our second single. It might have been our first. I don't even remember. And it became obvious that people were hungry for somebody to bring back uh, some of Bob Will's music. You know? um, and that's when it became obvious to us, wow, uh, you know, we knew he was famous. We knew he was great. But we also loved Moon Mullican. We loved Spade Cooley. We loved all of the Western swing bands, even the more obscure ones, you know, Cliff Brunner, uh, Milton Brown, etc. Um, so all of a sudden it was like, uh, you know, the folks came out of the woodwork, including the old Texas Playboys, you know, who went, wow, there's a bunch of young kids with a funny name playing our music that nobody's been playing for years. So that began the path uh, towards more uh, Bob Wills stuff. Fascinating. Bob was really key to, to Western Swing. One of the things that he did was he, he added drums. And I believe at some, one recording session, they said, well, we don't, we don't need drums here. And he said, well, you've got Bob Wills, so you're no, going to have drums. It wasn't a recording session. It was the Grand Old Opry. Ah, Okay, can you share? Yeah, share that story. Well, before that, what you're talking about was when he recorded in Dallas uh, at 508, probably, I mean, I'm assuming, Art Satherly. Correct. Uh, was the uh, A&R guy uh, from the record company, and he had horns. He had three horns, and he said, Mr. Wills, we're looking for a fiddle band, you know, and that meant, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously it was and that's part of what bob was he played that old you know texas fiddle um sally gooden had been a million seller record for oh uh, what's the name in amarillo um, uh, the great fiddler i'll remember in a minute so they were looking for more fiddle music and uh so sadly said uh, get rid of those horns and he said well pack them up boys we don't need to be playing here and they they cut osage stomp and a, a number of other tunes the drum thing came at the Grand Old Opry in 1945 when he was so big because after the war, I mean, San Antonio Rose was a huge hit, uh, both by him and Bing Crosby and many others. So 1945, Bob Wills is at its height after the war. You know, he got the big band back together and he's playing the Grand Old Opry and they say, no, you can't have drums. And he says, pack them up, boys. We're going back to the Whoa, Mr. Wills, <laughs> you know, because he was so big. And uh, then they said, well, we'll put the drums behind a curtain. And that's what I had heard. And then I was told later, no. They, he said, no, my drums play on stage, you know. Uh, so between the saxophones and trumpets and trombones uh, from the 30s, really, to the mid-40s with the drums, Bob insisted that, no, this is what my band is. You're not going to pigeonhole me. Now... What happened after 1945 was when, and from 40 on, was when he got into the movies. Right. When they really pigeonholed him as they thought he was Gene Autry or Roy Rogers or, you know, and it was an uncomfortable situation for, for him. I have a couple of points I want to follow up on. After World War II, one of the amazing things about Bob was how big of a survivor he was because uh, you look at Tommy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, all of the other people, they started fading significantly after World War II, but Bob and the Texas Playboys, they kept surviving. 
Well, yeah, it, it, the end of the big band era uh, was 1951, you know, 51 when I was born. But uh, Bob succumbed to that, too. It just it took till 1953 or four. Uh, but yeah, right after the war, well, first of all, uh, there was that second migration of uh, Texans, Arkansas, uh, you know, Midwesterners to California. These are folks that had right. been in World War II, and California was a boom state. And um, so many of the Okies are now, you know, in, in the Dust Bowl days when they came, they were, they were, you know, persona non grata there. You know, you've seen the Grapes of Wrath and all that. But after World War II, there was industry, there was jobs, and Western Swing was huge. Bob moved out to California uh, in 1949, or I think it was. He moved to Sacramento because before that, they would play the San Joaquin Valley from uh, from San Diego all the way up uh, through the Pacific Northwest in these ballrooms, and Bob Wills was huge. There was a guy named Cactus Jack in uh, San Jose, you know, which is the South Bay there, and he did a radio program of nothing but Bob Wills. I actually met the guy once back in early early seventies. Um, the Oakland Auditorium. Uh, there's uh, he outdrew Tommy Dorsey in nineteen forty six. You know. Yeah, I think he set records for the largest audience out there. Yeah, and back then it was a show business was a lot smaller. But there were all these servicemen there. They had been Alameda Air Force Base. You know, it was obviously the West Coast was a heavy military preference because of the Japanese War. You know, so yeah, I mean, all you know, it was huge. Um, but again, most and then when I uh, got to California, I met a lot of old guys who said, "Yeah, by 1956, if you were a fiddle player, you couldn't find work anywhere." Elvis had totally ruined it, you know, and rock and roll. And it was a generational thing, you know. Right. And um, that's when Western Swing went kind of into the uh, back room and then finally almost disappeared. Right. An interesting thing, going back to the uh, 508 recording where it was a summertime when when they did that first recording. And I believe they had big tubs of ice uh, they had tubs filled with ice to try and keep the guys cool what, yeah, they, what call that the the undershirt session or the underwear session because they all had to took off their, their shirts and pants it was so hot <laughs> the other thing that came out of there i believe was the uh, bob would always express himself during uh, solos or leading into solos and i believe art satherly didn't appreciate that a lot same thing yeah yeah and it's funny because uh, you know that was Bob. That was just what he did. And and where it came from? It came from his heart. Some people say, oh, it was like the Mexican Grito, you know, ah, you know, who knows? Nobody, you know, so it was Bob Wills. But yeah, at one time uh, we did a uh, Bob Wills tribute album called Ride with Bob. Yes. And a, a Ride with Bob. And uh, I gave one, Mark Chestnut, a singer from, from Beaumont, uh, sang on it. And uh, one of the guys the young kids in his band at the time mid 90s went and got a Bob Wills uh, tape from the truck stop to hear what what's this Bob Wills guy they're all talking about and he came to Mark and he said something's wrong with this tape some guy keeps talking all over to things that's <laughs> well, that's Bob Wills and that's what he did I love it I knew some guys who used to say, uh, who were like old timers, who say, ah, they didn't like Bob Wills because he talked all over that. And the guys who were on the in, in the band went, we loved it. This is, you know, this was an era where the band leader didn't mention the band. And all of a sudden on the radio, on the records, it's, oh, Al. And all of a sudden mentioned his name, you know, the fiddle player's name, the guitar player's name. That was huge for the uh, sideman. Absolutely. You, you talked a little bit about uh, white people playing black music and black people playing white music and etc. One of the interesting things I read about during this period is when, let's say, the Texas Playboys would be in Dallas. When they'd finish their show, uh, the black artists would be, have, be wrapping up their shows at another part of town. And these artists would maybe meet up afterwards and jam. Yeah, not as much as we would think, but you know, integration was not a thing. Uh, there are stories of, uh, I know Eldon told me about going to see Charlie Christian you know, in the 30s, or maybe just listening, but it was such a segregated world. 
look, here's the interesting thing about that whole deal is that, you know, Bob Will said he learned his rhythm, his dance, his and all this thing working in the fields next to black kids who would be singing, you know, in, in the in the cotton fields. And I absolutely believe that because of what he does, the way he danced around. That was that was uh, uh, medicine show uh, stuff. He came from medicine shows. You know, Emmett Miller. If you know who Emmett Miller and the Georgia Crackers are, no, that's new news to me. Th- please expand. Uh, no, that's who Bob. You know, when they when when Dr. Charles Townsend asked Bob Wills, "Who were you trying to be when you were 20 years old?" He said Emmett Miller, and Emmett Miller was the first person to sing "Right or Wrong." You're the cream in my coffee. Anytime, um, all of these, a lot of the songs that Tommy Duncan and Bob were emulating, and he yodeled. It's where Jimmy Rogers got his yodel from. Um, the guy was was a mystery. There are, I think, three or four pictures of him, and one of one of a video of him in the '50s recreating, or you know, the the um, minstrel show stuff. So that's who Bob took off from, and, and uh, you know, it was... So you take all that, and that's what made Bob Wills. Uh, and so when you look back on this, though, in Texas, they were lynching black people. Uh, Jim Crow was uh, the law of the land. Segregation was the law of the land, but worse than that, violence, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, et cetera. It was brutal, and to have this white guy revere the music was to try to emulate the music was what it was I always thought was the great dichotomy of American race relations in in the uh, modern day is that you know these were people who revered the African American culture and yet they were totally you know subjugated and racist you know? yeah the, one of the things you talked about uh, Bob being in the fields with the blacks uh, and one of the things I believe he recognized was that his fiddle playing he kind of used a I'll use the term raw kind of a raw kind of an aggressive uh, playing style that differentiated him from a lot of other people which I believe was influenced by the the, the blacks and the blues it was rhythmic it was rhythmic and of course the blues he sang you know one of his big numbers was St. Louis Blues uh, the other one was was the Milk Cow Blues Kokomo Arnold you know these were blues tunes. There were, I read an article by a uh, English fellow who loved Bob Wills until 1939, and I was kind of because around that time you see Bob turn into more of a Western act as opposed to a blues and jazz uh, fiddle band, you know. Right. So uh, I, I I asked Eldon Shamlin once about that, and and Eldon said, well, Bob got the Tulsa Rodeo in 1939. I said, what do you mean? He said, because if you look at pictures before that, they're dressed as pop artists, like Rudy Valley, like, you know, the, like the pop artists of the day. And then all of a sudden they're wearing cowboy hats and riding it. He said, oh, we got the, the, the Tulsa rodeo became the Bob Wills rodeo. And so we rode in on horses and, you know, we were all, I mean, it's not like they weren't, but that was the path that they chose. And from that point in, I have what the, they did, what I call the classic Western swing, which is twin fiddle, steel guitar, less uh, New Orleans and Mississippi blues, you know, and Chicago blues. And it just was the evolution of Bob Wills because that music is great too. It is a, it is, a, it is what a lot of country music people like about Bob Wills, the faded love, take me back to Tulsa, roly poly. It's wonderful, incredible string band music with a swing beat, you know. Uh, whereas uh, the previous would be, like I say, Mocal Blues, St. Louis Blues, some really New Orleans jazz stuff, you know. Yeah, interestingly, uh, Bob was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and one of his, mentioning different songs, one of the songs uh, that he put together was Ida Red, which influenced a gentleman that just passed away, I believe, a month ago or so, as Chuck Berry. They, yeah, Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan, and Bob Wills. You know, Louis Jordan and his Tiffany Five were the other great influences on Chuck Berry, who liked you know Choo Choo Boogie and Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens and Caledonia. What make your big head so hard? You take those two, Bob Wills, that, and also country music, Boom Chuck, Boom Chuck, Boom Chuck, and that's Chuck Berry. Yeah, yeah, and I believe he he said that he basically flipped or worked with Ida Red and maybe made, made it into Maybelline. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, I'll tell you, Tommy Alsop, who just passed away, Tommy played uh, lead guitar for Buddy Holly. 
after Sonny Curtis quit the band, uh, Sonny wanted a raise and Buddy wouldn't give it to him, so he quit. And Tommy was playing in Billy Gray's Western Swing Band in in Dallas, who was uh, they were they were at one time Hank Thompson's band, and they were the leading Dallas uh, Western Swing Band in, in in the mid '50s, what was left, you know. And he hired Tommy to play lead guitar in Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And I asked Tommy, well, what'd you do different? He said, I just turned the treble up on my amp, you know. <laughs> and if you listen to a lot of the, like Elvis doing Milk Out Blues, that's the same solo from the Bob Wills band. I mean, it's, you know, it's all there. Buddy, uh, Bill Holly and, 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 you know, Bill Ho- you know, Bill Haley in the comments was a, a Western swing band before they put out. Yes. They, they were Bill Haley and the Saddle Tramps or the Western Airs, I can't remember, something like that. And, you know, uh, they had a steel guitar, you know, with a one-legged steel guitar, and, they, and the producer, Milt Gabler, was the guy who produced them and Louis Jordan. So you get this whole, you know, mishmash of people, and then there's other people. Down in Beaumont, you had uh, the Big Bopper, which with uh, Link Davis Sr. played the sax on that, and all those crazy guys who Johnny Gimbel called them Hepcats to me. He said in the 50s they were Hepcats, you know, and that was a transition from R&B, blues, western swing into rockabilly, rock and roll. And, and Gimbel called them Hepcats uh, and, and, and that they played blues-infused music with saxes and guitars, and but they come from western swing traditions, you know. Yeah. Being a band leader such as yourself, one of the things that uh, Bob is recognizing, at least I read in his book, was uh, he was almost too nice and too open from time to time. Uh, he, If somebody got a hold of him and asked for something, he was known to kind of, well, let me see if I can help you on that. And, uh, oh, he gave away a lot of money, you know. Yeah, Jesse Ashlock, his old fiddle player, was a good friend of mine. Said the same thing. He'd he'd go to him and Bob give him a hundred dollars to pay his rent and everything, even when he wasn't working for him. Bob's awards. He was always worried if he was never go- that he was never going to get elected in the Country Music Hall of Fame, but he made it in 1968. Uh, Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970. I mentioned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was 1999. 2007, he received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, one heck of a, uh, an artist, and, and I thank you so much for carrying on his music. Uh, but before we go, I definitely want to hear more about A Sleep of the Wheel, where you are, where you're going. Uh, you also have that TV show, uh, Texas Music Scene, and I wa- want to hear a little bit about where you are, Ray. Well, I uh, just got back from uh, uh, touring. We're, we're in Texas for a little while, but then we'll go hit the road again next week. Uh, a Sleep of the Wheel is going to start a new album next uh, in the fall with our new lineup of all kinds of young folks because uh, the music uh, only exists if the next generations pick it up and they sure have especially in the Dallas Fort Worth area there's so many young great um, western swing players and uh, in California and the east everywhere in Europe too you know so um we're doing that asleep at the wheel the TV show's going good we're uh, just in our seventh year and uh, we're rejiggering it now but we're in lots of cities all over the country 60, 70 you know cities outside of Texas and um, so that's going good I produce records you know uh, through some with Jake Shimabukuro the, the great ukulele player and with Willie Nelson and I'm um, doing some stuff with Bruce Hornsby and Lyle Lovett so we stay busy well, Ray, I can't thank you enough. Fantastic. Well, keep up the good work and uh, and tell them, yeah, Doug, it'd be great to see him. Thank you, Ray, very, very much. You have a great day, and we'll see you on the road. Adios, amigo. Adios. During our conversation with Ray Benson, we made mention of 508 Park, a building in downtown Dallas. The musical and recording history of Robert Johnson and Bob Wills and Texas Playboys and many other artists during the 30s and 40s at this facility is just fantastic. With that said, back in 2009-2010 time frame, the building was at risk. The then owners were considering tearing this historic structure down. That is when First Presbyterian Church of Dallas stepped in and acquired the building. From there, the Encore Park and 508 Park organizations were put in place, and their leadership has been working on the restoration of the facility. With our next guest, Pat Bywaters, 
the executive director for Encore Park, will take a deeper look into the history of 508 Park and get an understanding as their plans from now going forward. Pat, can you get us started? Sure. Well, uh, some people may not know, Encore Park is a a project that involves a couple of buildings and uh, will involve some some programming and some collaboration with some social services and arts organizations here in Dallas. But one of the two buildings um, that we're working with is a historic building. It was built in 1930 as uh, the Warner Brothers Film Exchange. Um, It's more commonly known today as 508 Park Avenue, which is the street address. It's a three-story building with a half half basement and a small theater actually up on the roof. And Warner Brothers used this as a regional distribution hub for their for their films. Um, so they were distributing uh, also Vita, Vitaphones, which they owned Vitagraph. Um, that was actually the name of their distribution company, as I understand it, during, in the late 20s, early 30s. And uh, First National Pictures was a sister studio of theirs, so they were distributing that. We know that they also rented out some film vaults to some other companies like Grand National. Um, but 508 is actually situated in a historic area of Dallas. It's pretty much forgotten now. It's known as Film Row. Uh, people have heard of Theater Row over on Elm Street, which is where the district where all the theaters were. But Film Row was where all the film exchanges were. And today, that's it's like about a quarter mile uh, east of, da- of City Hall, right? Right, yeah. Just uh, We're just a few blocks from the farmer's market area. And uh, there's still several of those other film exchanges in, in the area. There's uh, United Artists. Uh, there's Paramount over on Harwood. Both of those are on Harwood, right across from First Presbyterian Church of Dallas. And then uh, around the corner of us to the south a little bit is the old Universal Film Exchange. Um, they still have two of their film vaults intact, which I'm trying to talk that owner out of his goods so that we can use that as part of our historic displays at the Warner Brother building. But um, the way the connection of Warner Brothers with the music is that in 1930, right after the building opened up, Warner Brothers bought uh, the record uh, and phonograph business from Brunswick Balky Colander. And there was a regional office down on Elm Street, uh, further down, further west down toward the Trinity River. And uh, they picked that office up, and they moved it to the third floor of 508 Park. And uh, there was a gentleman that came along with that acquisition named Don Law. He was originally a staff accountant. He somehow, somehow he ended up in Dallas. I don't have the whole story on that yet. But he uh, came from England, um, moved to Dallas with another firm that he had been working for, I believe, back east. And he... That business, I think, folded, and he ended up getting a job at Brunswick Balky Colander. And so when Warner Brothers bought that, he came over in the acquisition. And uh, I recently actually found an article about Don Law in one of these 1950s country magazines that said that um, in 1931, Don Law was appointed head of A&R for this region. So uh, within a year, uh, and it was Probably just about the time. So Warner Brothers held on to that business for a year and then sold it to the American Record Corp. And American Record Corp, uh, so we know the stock market crashed in 29. So American Record Corp had some money behind it. And they were taking advantage of the stock market crash and the advent of the Depression to buy up a lot of small record labels. And so here was Warner Brothers with this record label that they thought they really wanted. And then they decided, well, no, we don't. So they sold it to ARC. um, But when they sold it to ARC, uh, ARC signed a contract with Warner Brothers to have the regional office remain on the third floor of 508. And at that point, Don Law became in charge of the whole region. Now, that may have also had something to do with the fact that over at ARC, there was a producer named uh, Art Satherly. Art Satherly was also from England. And Art had come out of Paramount Records and was, I believe he might have been one of the producers for Blind Lemon Jefferson. I'm still, I'm still getting up to speed on a lot of this myself. I'm not a professional music researcher, but I've learned an awful lot reading a lot of great music researchers out there. Um, so anyway, uh, Art and Don met at some point. Art may have had something to do with Don Law's promotion. In fact, they were both Englishmen. They probably saw the music business here in the United States very similar, I would guess, having, uh, having a sim- similar background growing up in England. 
So anyway, uh, what's significant about Don Law is, so Don Law was responsible for the field recordings that were done at 508 in 1935, 1937. Uh, They did field recordings in the building again in early 38 and late 38. And then they actually moved out. They moved the offices somewhere else, but they did come back. We found some paperwork at the Jack Warner Archives at the University of Southern California uh, that there was some business correspondence between the local Warner Brother manager and the home office um, trying to explain this $100 that Ark had given him to come back and use, use the old room, which some people referred to as the studio, but it was the, the Beaverboard room up on the third floor. So uh, why, why, is called, why is it called a Beaverboard room? Well, okay, and that little factoid we know about, we found a uh, transcript of an interview with Don Law and Art Satherly at the Country Music Hall of Fame where they're talking about the field recordings that they had done at 508 Park and in this region. And uh, the story of the makeshift studio comes up, and one of the two of them says that, yeah, it was pretty makeshift. They just built a room out of Beaverboard. Now, I looked that up. It apparently was an early... uh, engineered wood product, kind of like particle board or masonite. And so uh, what we believe is that they actually built that room uh, somewhere in the warehouse there on the third floor. Uh, we have somewhat of an idea of where it might be on that floor. It's not a, that's not a, the third floor of the, that Warner Brother building is not that big. But um, these were still field recordings. So even though we kind of say there was a studio there, I mean, people need to understand that there weren't real studios in this part of the country, you had to go to Chicago or New York for a real studio. What we had here was largely the engineers would come down with their equipment and they'd set up in a hotel or in this case a warehouse. This was a record warehouse on the third floor of the Warner Brother building. And they would have arranged three or four weeks worth of bands to just come in and record one after the other. So they were recording like one, two or three bands a day. And uh, it, this wasn't like a lot of people think, oh, well, Johnson came to a studio here in Dallas, Texas and booked some time at the studio. It wasn't like that at all. No, no, no. This had been totally prearranged. Johnson knew well in advance that he was going to be coming from Mississippi. Not, uh, and I need to qualify that whole story, too, because that was very unusual for a musician to travel that far. Normally what they did was they traveled the equipment and the engineers to where the musicians were and they would bring them in locally. Uh, rather than traveling them great distances. So they would set up for three or four weeks, and they would just record band after band after band. And uh, they were, these were relatively inexpensive recordings. Um, another piece of information folks need to know about is that uh, in the late 20s, when we had the advent of portable recording equipment, one of the other things that went along with trying to figure out you know, if we could go out into America and record all this other music that we were never able to bring to a studio in, say, Chicago or New York, who would buy it? Okay, well, we, I think the record companies assumed that it would be uh, kind of a... Well, records in the early, in the teens and 20s was, were really marketed as a, as a... to the sophisticated person, sophisticated, educated person. You know, you bought records to listen to Beethoven and Brahms and, you know, great, great composers that were played by the German Philharmonic. And uh, you bought these not only for your own pleasure and edification, but also for your kids. I mean, this was, you know, important to expose your kids if you were going to have a, an educated family. And, these re- and the records tended to sell for like a, anywhere from, I think they went from like a dollar to like a dollar seventy-five each. I mean, this was a lot of money back in the teens and 20s. So with the advent of the portable recorders, they knew that if they went out and recorded all this vernacular music, in other words, music of all the different ethnic groups, what if we went out and recorded hillbilly music, and we recorded Czech music, and we recorded Native Americans? Um, It was going to be a different audience to buy that. And so they knew they were going to have to probably hit a a price point that was under where they had been. So they came up with some different pressing techniques to make lesser expensive records. And these were known as their dime store labels. And so Brunswick had the Vocalion label. Brunswick was the higher end label. And then Vocalion was the dime store label. And you could get three Vocalions for a dollar. So instead of one Brunswick for a dollar, you could get three Vocalions for a dollar. So when the engineers were making recordings, these were down and dirty recordings. The bands were expected to be rehearsed, ready to go, 
no second takes. These were live recordings, direct to disc. There was no mix. Well, excuse me. There, there was no mix by the engineer. The mix was actually choreographed, people moving to and from the microphone. So to kind of circle this all back together, you had the dime store light, the advent of the dime store labels, the advent of the portable recording equipment. Um, you had engineers going at. You had all these. Uh, regional managers like Don Law, who had A&R responsibilities, that's uh, artist and repertoire, to go out and find talent and get it recorded. Um, and then they had also responsibility for getting the records distributed. But, um, but they started doing that on a regional basis. And so they were trying to keep the cost down, you know, because they were only going to sell these records for a dollar for three. So... Uh, Usually they would only do two takes, and what I've heard is that the two takes wasn't so much to necessarily have a better recording, but they would send half the records out on one shipment, because uh, this was before the days of interstate, and in, you know a whole shipment of records could get wiped out. So they would send one set out, say one day, and maybe the second set out the second day. So the second, set, the second takes were really insurance on the recording session, that you didn't lose three or four weeks' worth of recordings. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the recordings would get back to the pressing plant, and then they'd, you know, press out the records, and then the records would come back to the regional warehouses like the one Don Law had at 508 Park. And it was up to him to, you know, market them by getting them either radio was a very new medium, but uh, the, the traditional medium had been to get them into jukeboxes, you know, so people could hear them at the local tavern, and then they might actually go buy one. So, uh, um that's kind of how the record business was running in the uh, early, early and mid and late 1930s. So uh, uh, Brunswick had already been doing recordings in the region, and um, 508 just, I think, presented an opportunity to save a little bit of money because they didn't have to go to rent a hotel room for, for four weeks and deal with all that, 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 those logistics. Um, so, uh, they thought, well, we'll just record here in the warehouse and see it turns out. So, so what we know about how those sessions went and a lot of it that is due to the, uh, Bob Wills biography, you've got a copy of right here by, uh, Charles Townsend. Right. Um, there's a nice interview in there where there's, where they're actually talking about the 1937 recording session, which is the one that I think they refer to it in there as the underwear session, but <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Right. But. Uh, so the engineers, the first set of sessions, uh, they came, the engineers came down in 1935, and they actually set up in the warehouse at the, at, at the back half of the building. And uh, from what we have heard, it uh, was a little reverberant in there, and so the engineers tried hanging burlap in the room, and they proceeded to do the, do the 1935 sessions. I, have, I believe I've heard from some of the more technical experts in the Western Swing Field, that there were some issues with the 1935 recordings in addition to the uh, the extra live, the room being a little mm -hmm. too live. Um, and so anyway, the engineers overall just weren't terribly ha as happy with the 35 sessions as they would like. And that led to them building this makeshift studio room in the warehouse out of Beaverboard. And... They did the remaining, uh, they did the sessions in 37, which that included Bob Wills as well as Robert Johnson. Right. They had recorded Johnson nine months earlier down in San Antonio at the Gunner Hotel, uh, which was an arc, part of an arc session. Right, but they were um, still under the responsibility of the still staff. Un yeah, yeah still under responsibility of, of Don Law yeah. as the head A&R guy for the region. And um, they brought back Johnson back to participate in these 37 sessions. So, uh, so Johnson probably recorded in this same room under the same conditions that, that Bob Wills had. I, if I remember the recording order correctly, I think Bob recorded two weeks ahead of Johnson. Johnson recorded uh, on June 19th, which is actually here in Texas is known as Emancip Juneteenth, or that's Texas Emancipation Day, and then June 20th. Um, but Bob had recorded on three separate days a um, couple, couple of weeks uh, earlier, and... Uh, it was hot. Yeah. It was Absolutely. hot. It was hot. I believe this was, uh, um, yeah, so he would have been there right at the beginning of June. So uh, they'd, br they'd bring in ice, right, to try and Well, yeah, it. I think if I remember the way they described it there, they said they had uh, in this room, 
which we're pretty sure did not have any of the windows. I think the windows had added to part of the uh, uh, sound issues, you know, sound from the street coming through the windows. And there's some places on the third floor that they could have built that room where you wouldn't have had any windows. So you could imagine just a dark room, maybe with a couple of light bulbs in it and a little window for the engineer to peer through. Uh, That's what I'm imagining. And um, what it says in the Santonio Rose Bob Wills biography is that they had wash tubs filled up with ice with fans blowing over it. And they turned the fans on between takes. Of course, when they were getting ready to record, they would have to turn the fans off. But you can imagine a bunch of, you know, I think Bob had a bunch of musicians. I've tried to count up the instrumentation. It's like eight instruments, I think, uh, unless some people were maybe doing double duty on some stuff. Uh, But you can imagine eight musicians stuffed into a small room, huffing and puffing, in the middle uh, of yeah, in the middle of June with no air conditioning and with nothing but a couple of wash tubs filled with ice, gets um, uncomfortable. I very imagine fast. it was, but you know those guys were in their twenties and they were kind of playing the punk music of their day or the hip hop music of their day. You right. know, they were they were having a ball. They were playing, they were basically playing jazz on the instruments they had all learned learned to play on. And uh, back then, it was actually referred to if you had a hillbilly band. A hillbilly band was called a string band. So if you took that same complement of musicians and they played jazz, that was known as hot string band because it was hot because it was <laughs> you know up tempo. So that's what these guys were doing was they were experimenting with jazz, you know, jazz and blues and country and uh, pushing the limits, you know. And uh, if you go back and you listen, especially that 1930s Bob Wills music and and also the music of the Light Crust Doughboys, there's some fairly risque stuff in there. You might. Hear something that would be no more unusual than you might hear today, almost. Yeah. Um, but but these were the this was the twenty somethings this crowd. That's what they were listening to back then. Yeah, I mean he, he Bob broke a lot of uh, rules. He was the first person to add a drummer to uh, you know to fi- to play in a, a string band. And rhythm was big to him, and dance was big to him. Uh, so he he vied and competed with the Goodmans and the Dorseys uh, very well during this time frame. Well, they they really did think of themselves as jazz musicians, uh, as I understand it. Um, in fact, uh, they didn't even look like. I mean, the whole Western swing genre that you think of with all the you know the the twelve guys on the stage all with cowboy hats and matching. Uh, Matching, you know, cowboy cut uniforms and, and uh, you know, the shirts and the the little Western ties and all that. That's not the way they looked in the 1930s. They they wanted to, I mean, they were emulating their heroes. They were dressing like the East Coasters, you know. Um, they wanted to look like Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington. And, uh, uh, and that's what they were trying to trying to emulate. And, and so, you know, if you go back and you listen to the, the, the 1930s Bob Wills music is really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Because it's uh, it's just a little bit different than uh, all the tunes that you kind of associate with Western Swing. The, that Western Swing sound, hot string band, really kind of morphed. In, I would say kind of morphed into Western Swing uh, about the late '40s, and that's when the guys decided that. Because uh, uh, I think they were picking up on the fact that, especially back home here in te- in the Texas area. That when that jazz had that little bit of Texas feel to it, um, that they were really picking up big audiences, you know, here and in Oklahoma and 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 around, and it was and that they were onto something unique that was a little bit different than traditional jazz, and definitely different than traditional hillbilly or country music, and uh, you know, I think they just kind of stumbled on stumbled onto it accidentally i think because a lot of music just kind of evolves and then all of a sudden somebody goes oh that's cool and somebody else says it's cool and play that again and and before you know it you've kind of created another genre right well bob was very open to different music i mean he had a big ear i mean he we're jumping into the bob will side of it but which is just fine but uh, he was very influenced by black music, by the, the yeah. blues. Of, well, my, yeah, my understanding was that he was a very big Bessie Smith fan. Um, there's some some story, I don't even know if it's true or not, it's supposedly about him riding a mule or a mule, you know, some crazy number of miles to go see Bessie Smith back in the 20s. Now, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds good. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. But when you, listen, when you listen to the early Bob Wills, you know, a, a tune, 
audience, go out on YouTube, go out on YouTube and listen to Black Rider. And that will that will help you understand what I'm talking about here. When you hear Black Rider versus, you know, the things that a lot of the big songs that we associate with Bob, like Roly Poly and Ida Red and some of the, some of the stuff. San Antonio Rose. Yeah. 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 It'll really, it'll really tell you kind of where, where the guys were coming from early in their career. Right. Well, to to follow onto that, I mean, as we've hinted, these are really top tier musicians and, when they would be playing live in Dallas, let's say, or other cities, uh, when they would finish their shows, you know, the black artists would be playing in different areas of the town. And many times these artists would meet up at hotel rooms later in the evening and jam. Yeah, yeah, meet, well, yeah, potentially meet, meet up anywhere. I've heard a, uh, a, a real interesting, um, well, actually, it was a producer based here in Dallas that did one of the Robert Johnson um, documentaries. Um, it actually, I think it's kind of a docudrama. Uh, I think it's uh, called, uh, can you hear the wind howl? Hmm. And, uh, the director actually sent me an outtake of an interview that he had done with Smokey Montgomery, who was the banjo player for the light crust Doughboys, And, uh, Smokey was talking about connecting with the black musicians, you know, late at night after they'd gotten done with their gigs and how, you know, the only thing, the only thing that mattered was the music. And, uh, you know, they would all, they were all learning from each other, you know, and I, th- I that's one of the beautiful things about this whole story. And one of the beautiful things just about music in general is it's always brought people together when, when other things have kind of divided us. Um, music's one of the things that we, that has always pulled it, pulled us together across whatever, whatever lines humanity's good at creating. We're always seem good at creating buckets, but, yep. uh, but, and when we, you know, even though we put music in categories, it's so it's so funny, you know, because I'm sitting here saying music music kind of becomes this universal language, even though we put it in buckets. It's it's the one thing that I think we seem to put in in buckets, but can still kind of well, you know, food does that a little bit. Yeah. But may, but like you like you know, you're hinting to many times, the artists hate I, being put in buckets. Oh, they do. They yeah. don't like it at all. No, they don't because I think they want the freedom to explore and, and push their own push their own boundaries. You know, you know whether that's music or styles of art or I think it's just art in general pulls us together. Yeah, because I think it, it it tells us something about who we are as humans. Yes. And uh, so anyway, that's what you know. That's what everybody was exploring. You know, and I think. Uh, you know, Don, Don Law and Art Satherley, I mean, they were in business. They were they were business guys. But I think they truly enjoyed the business because they both uh, they both had long careers. Um, Arc in uh, about 19, I think it was late 38 or early 39, sold out to uh, CBS. And one of the labels that uh, Arc had actually acquired um, Columbia Records, Columbia and CBS had separated way back there. And I think CBS had wanted to reacquire Columbia Records at some point. And uh, ARC had acquired Columbia out of bankruptcy in 1934. And that label had kind of been sitting dormant inside of ARC. And anyway, ARC sold out in, I believe it was early 39. And CBS relaunched Columbia. And so that's why you see later Bob Will stuff on Columbia Records or the OK label, which was a... The dime store, that was kind of the dime store label for Columbia. <laughs> and, um, oh, I forgot where I was going with all that. Oh, anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah. So at that point, Art Satherly, as I understand it, headed all of the, pretty much all the country music for, um, for Columbia Records. I think, or they may, he and Don Law had some division at some point where maybe I think Art was handling the kind of the east of the Mississippi and Don was handling west of the Mississippi, something like that. Anyway, they collaborated for quite a while. And then after Art retired, I believe it was in the mid-50s, um, Don took over, and he ran it pretty much through the 50s and 60s uh, and was one of the three big producers that had most of, uh, most of the country artists in Nashville, as I understand it. There was Don, Don Law and Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley. Those were kind of the three big guys. Wonderful. And uh, so, 
One thing that was, we've obviously focused a lot on Robert Johnson and Bob Wills, but I wanted to give the audience a perspective of kind of the broadness of all the different artists. Like I was sitting here, my, I'm holding yeah, in my you got hand. got a battalion there. Yeah, The Yellow Rose of Texas by Gene Autry, right? Yeah, Gene Autry and Jimmy, Jimmy Long. Yeah, this is, uh, let's see, this was probably, Autry, you know, Autry was born just north of Dallas here in Tioga and spent a little time in Oklahoma, and then he went out to Hollywood where he pretty much stayed. Yeah, this was probably... Then he went on to buy, build the uh, Los Angeles, or the Anaheim Angels, which became the Los Angeles Angels baseball team. Oh, there and you he, go. He was their okay. owner for years. Yeah, this looks like this is probably from 1930, about 1934, 1935, I think. Could but be. But and you also it, had like Tejano artists that mm-hmm. recorded there. And yeah. This was, Autry did do a, a short, uh, he did... He recorded, I think, four or five songs in the 1935 recording sessions at 508 Park. But uh, that was the only time he was at, at 508. But Art Satherly got credit for signing Gene Autry. And supposedly Autry said, well, why should I sign with Arc rather than, say, um, RCA Victor or Decca?" And uh, supposedly Satherly said, well... You can be the big fish in the small pond because at the time they were the they were the kind of the third tier they were the third uh, biggest label Arc was um, at the time in the 30s but they signed Gene Autry and it was a very good move because Autry did uh, very well for him the there's kind of a, also a funny little connection uh, all of Autry's films are on Republic Pictures and uh, Arc was owned by its parent company was a a film reproduction company called CFI. Okay. And CFI also owned Republic Pictures. So it may not have been an accident that Satherly was able to sign Autry because it was all in the family. So what's the other vocalion you got there? Yeah, I got, uh, I've got Bob Wills, oh, Blue, yeah. P- Blues Prelude. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. See, this is DAL 566. That's the matrix number. of the, That tells you the actual recording. And, uh, yeah, that's Blue Prelude, and we got Sophisticated Hula on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I And like that's that. DAL 569. So that was probably done, this might, this one was probably a 1930, I'm going to say a 1938 recording. Um, but, yeah, all, all great, all great stuff. Um, yeah, and the records still exist in are out there and can be found. And if you can find yourself a 78 player, which there's some on the market still, uh, um, it's, it's really something. I had the privilege actually yesterday. There's a gentleman here in Dallas that owns a copy of uh, the Robert Johnson record that's got uh, Sweet Ooh. Home Chicago on it. Oh, wow. And uh, we got to, I got to go over to, his, go over to his house and hear the Robert Johnson 78 direct, direct in my ears. You know, it's no, still pretty clean? Yeah, yeah. It's a nice, clean copy. The label's a little torn up, but yeah, as far as a player copy, yeah, yeah it's very clean. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, it was a real pr- privilege to get to hear it. Pat, uh, we've talked about you know, the history of 508 Park, but uh, five, six years ago, there were people talking about destroying the building. And uh, the, some people that you're involved with stepped in and stopped that. And I think what, what's happened over the last five years and what you see coming up is very important for our audience to hear about. Yeah, the, uh, the 508 building, uh, I think we're through a fortunate set of circumstances. Um, we ended up... Uh, well, there's an organization in Dallas that's uh, called the Stew Pot that does services for homeless folks and at-risk families and kids. Um, great organization. has been around 40 years. Um, it's a part of the First Presbyterian Church downtown Dallas. And the Stew Pot actually got the project started. Um, they had been looking... Um, they have, have need for basically more space to support their programming and some of their partners' programming. There's, there's some other nonprofits that are kind of resident in the same building as the Stew Pot. And uh, the executive director over there, a gentleman named Bruce, Bruce Buchanan, um, he had had a vision to buy the 508 building 20 years ago. And uh, the building had been vacant since the early 80s. Um, and he had seen the parade of people over the years, you know, come by and lay hands on the building and take their picture in front of the building. And he finally figured out, you know, he learned about Robert Johnson and 
uh, knew that there that was an important piece of the history. Uh, uh, didn't know a whole lot more than that, but he knew that there was some magic mojo in the building. Um, and he, he was kind of curious about that, too. He always said that he, his business is kind of helping people find a new purpose in life. And so repurposing things is kind of a, a thing Bruce does kind of professionally. And he, he also likes making art out of junk. Yes, he so does. So he says repurposing kind of is a, runs in his veins, I guess. And he just saw an opportunity to repurpose the building. Now, at the time, the building was for sale. And uh, um, as with a lot of older buildings, uh, well, sometimes here in Dallas, we just have a lack of creativity when it comes to thinking of interesting ways to use old buildings. So anyway, uh, Bruce kind of had the initial vision to to buy that as part of a part of an expansion of the Stupot Social Services. But um, and then. Shortly after that happened, which happened about six years ago, um, I got on the team because I had heard that Stupot had purchased the building. And we started digging into the history. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the history came forward pretty quickly. And, uh, and I think what we realized was that, you know, to just put a, put a bunch of social ser- – we could take the building and just put some social services agencies in there. But um, people were going to want to come see the building. And they were, people were going to want to celebrate that history that we were learning about with Bob Wills and uh, uh, the Light Crust Doughboys and Robert Johnson and Black Boy Shine and the Chuck Wagon Gang, uh, the Stamps Quartet, you know, all these wonderful bands that had recorded there were part of the Don Law Art, Art Satherly legacy, which is a major legacy in, in American music. So um, the idea became, well, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe there's another way, maybe there's a way we can accommodate the need for the stew pot to expand as well as celebrate the, the music history um, and film history of the building. So fortunately, this opportunity came along to buy this other building uh, that's right next door to the stew pot that's owned by, uh, currently owned by Encore, the company, Owen C.O.R. And so anyway, our plans are t- to purchase that and, do the nonprofit expansion into that building and then use 508 to celebrate the film and music history and create some some venues that can also support some of the programming over at the nonprofits. So we're uh, we're Encore Park is a little bit preservation, a little bit arts, um, a little bit support of social services, a little bit support of the arts community in Dallas. Um, uh, it's we. I think we found a kind of an interesting, creative blend of things that we can do that make uh, both social and financial sense. And so we're in the process of raising money. Um, we've uh, raised ten million dollars today. We formed a separate nonprofit from the Stew Pot that's called Encore Park Dallas, and it's raising money to complete the Encore Park project. And uh, we've raised uh, a total of $10 million to date. Uh, we've already done a first phase of construction where we spent $7 million. So we've still got a little bit of money in the bank. Um, we're working on raising an additional. If we got everything we wanted in life, we'd raise another $10 million. Um, uh, and uh, we're in the process of getting the word out for what we're planning on doing between the 508 building and the 515 park building. And uh, some of the history. We're even going to celebrate a little bit of railroad history. We have part of the original Houston, Texas Central. There was a rail spur that ran from the Houston, Texas Central was the first railway through Dallas. And there was a spur that uh, back when they uh, built the Union Terminal, uh, they needed a way to get cars over to where the other railroads were at the Union Station. And that ran right down Marilla on the south side of 515 Park. And there was a little business spur there for dropping things off to Dallas Power and Light. And so we've got a little rail spur there that we've talked with the uh, um, uh, the old Age of Steam Museum that's now out in Frisco about helping us uh, acquire a couple of rail cars that we've got some interesting plans for that we might reveal down the road. I like that. I like so, that. So we've got uh, lots of different historical preservation angles on the project and lots of interesting ways that we're going to bring in some new uh, social services collaborators and uh, arts organizations. And um, people are going to see some interesting, fun stuff happening at Encore Park. We've already done some neat stuff with 508 Park on the 
north side and south side, you've got... Right. We've already got a community garden up and running. Um, and the Stew Pot has a horticultural therapy program that they call the Stew Pot Garden Club. And those folks plant seedlings and take it all the way through. In fact, <laughs> I saw they were pulling potatoes and watermelons and uh, some other things out of the garden just within the last few days. It's starting to get a little hot. Uh, but uh, they're they're still pulling in the last of their harvest that they planted this spring, and then we've got folks that are uh, uh, there's some ch- church folks from across the street at First Pres that are that are members of the garden. Uh, there's some downtown residents, and uh, there's even um, uh, we've even got a couple of chefs that have some. They come and they'll they'll pick herbs for their uh, restaurant. Oh, crack me up! Yeah, that's great. So um, there's that. And then on the other side of the 508 building, we have open the 508 Amphitheater. Um, beautiful outdoor band shell. Um, probably some of the best, the best sounding outdoor space I've ever been in. Yeah, I can, I can vouch for that. The acoustics and, are uh, fascinating. The acoustics are great. And, and some got, of it's just interesting by, by happenstance. It's just that the bounce back that you get from the garage parking across the street just... It just plays beautifully acoustically. In yeah, there. it's got uh, it's got just enough live to it that you don't feel like you're just out in a field. You know, um, it's a it's a beautiful space for playing in the amphitheater. It's a it's a uh, set up kind of if you know what a folded horn is. Um, the the stage is set up like a folded horn, and it projects very nicely. Um, so it's a great it's a great venue for we we don't have to put much sound reinforcement on bands when they come in, um, and uh, we've had a whole mix of things going on in the amphitheater. We've had uh, poetry readings. We've had uh, we've shown old Warner Brother movies. We did a ser- we've done a couple of movie series in conjunction with our uh, historic Texas Theater and the Majestic Theater downtown. Um, we've had a, uh, we've collaborated some with the. Te- uh, Trinity River Blues Society. We do a, We do an annual celebration of the Robert Johnson recordings right around June nineteenth, June twentieth. Um, last year we had the Stephen Kettner Trio. Uh, we've had we've had a lot of we just had a lot of fun with the amphitheater, and it'll be a great asset once we have the whole Encore Park project uh, up and up and running we'll be able to have and the, and a lot of a lot of 508 including the amphitheater and some of the venues inside 508 will be rentable we, we're, we're also planning on uh, building a recording studio right up on the third floor so people can come uh, experience the magic mojo uh, and then somebody uh, somebody pretty relatively famous went there and experienced the mojo about well, 10 years ago that's right? true yeah eric clapton when he came to dallas to do the first crossroads guitar festival he filmed a, a third of a dvd that was called sessions for robert J, where he and doyle bramble sat on that in that third floor space so yeah we also had eric clapton do a little uh recording there on the third floor of 508 park uh, we heard that John Mellencamp had wanted to come at one point, a little bit after that, to do uh, to do an album. But I think the folks that owned the building at the time were a little afraid from a liability. The, the building was a real mess when we got a hold of it. Yeah. It was fine yeah. structurally, but the roof was leaking and copper thieves had been in there. And uh, there was nothing that was in good shape in that building except for except for the structure and even then we, we had to do some structural repairs at the roof level but uh building's in great shape now it's been completely restored on the exterior or nearly completely restored on the exterior we have a little bit of work on the first floor on the front of the building uh we're still looking for a photograph of the original doors if any of y'all out there have it <laughs> i need to see it um before we make an alternate choice um but all the masonry's been redone. The windows have been all restored. Uh, we've stored some original Warner Brothers signage on the outside of the building based on some photographs we found at the Jack Warner Archives in uh, University of Southern California. Um, so the building's looking great. It's really looking great. We just uh, need to raise a little bit more money to do the interior of it and, um, as I said, also do this 515 building across the street. Pat? Thanks so much for coming and participating. And I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you from time to time to come back and give us updates on how things are going at 508. Great, we'll we'll do it again. You got it. Thank you, Pat. And everybody should check websites. I should say that. Oh, please. There's uh, EncoreParkDallas.org, which is a little bit about our our nonprofit that we've formed that's doing the project and uh, what we're about and where we're going. So if you're looking for the calendar of events, it'll be there. 
Um, you can also look at 508park.org, which is a little more about the 508 building itself and the history. And then there will also be a uh, launching soon. There'll be a museumofstreetculture.org, which I will tell it. you a little bit about that uh, little endeavor that we've got going on. That'll be fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Dogger and Muddy Music Show today. As we go forward, we will work hard to bring you fascinating interviews with people from the blues, outlaw country, and Americana music worlds. With that said, next week we look into the other infamous artists that recorded at 508 Park in the 1930s here in Dallas, Texas, Robert Johnson. Many consider him one of the cornerstones of blues music. In the show, we will talk with a blues historian, and then with Robert Johnson's grandson, Stephen Johnson. We'll discuss his personal search to connect, understand his grandfather, Robert. For you blues fans, I know we'll be bringing you new information on Robert Johnson and the blues. If you have any thoughts and ideas on the show, please send an email to Doug at DoggerAndMuddy.com. Thanks again for listening in, and have a great day. Until next time, adios. When listening to music, Dogger and Muddy recommend turning the volume up to 11. Till next time.